there a writing craft book on your bedside table? Has it been there for a while? Do you keep meaning to get past chapter two or chapter one or just the first page? Then the Words to Write By podcast is for you. Hi, I'm Renee. I teach composition and creative writing to college students. My background is in poetry, but I'm working on my memoir. And I'm Kim. I'm trained as a science journalist, but now I'm trying my hand at short fiction. Each week we'll be tackling a chapter of some well-known, but perhaps not so well-read, writing craft book. Together, we'll uncover brilliant insights, face the hard truths, and totally disagree when the author is wrong. This is our podcast, after all. And then, we're going to take what we learn and apply it to our own writing. By doing the book's suggested exercises. We're inviting you to read along, or just tune in for the Cliff Notes version. We're committed to improving our own craft, one writing advice book at a time, and we'd love for you to join us. Hello, Words Drive by listeners. We have got something new for you. In addition to our process group, which meets every other Wednesday, on the Alternative Wednesdays, we are now offering a writing spree plus mini craft talk uh, that lasts about two hours. It's very much like Shut Up and Write. You show up to write for two hours with us, but for the first 10, 20 minutes, we're going to give a mini writing craft talk, which will come from a chapter of one of my very many craft books that I own, which is about 60 by now. So I have about 60 craft books. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull one out. I'm going to pick a chapter and I'm going to give a mini lesson or Kim. Kim might give the mini lesson. And they'll be short. We're going to talk about like, you know, just enough to spur you on, but not enough to allow you to procrastinate with what you want to write. Right. Exactly. So they'll give you a little uh, advice kick in you in the pants get you writing a little longer. That didn't make any sense. Please just cut that out, Kim. Mm-hmm. We developed a really good group at our process group, and we're hoping that people that come to our process group have the time to join us for the writing thing, or if you just need something at the end of your day to get a little extra writing in, it's a great, oh, be a good spot. Yep. So just go to our website. There's a banner. You can just click on it, and it'll take you to our meetup page, or you can just go to meetup and go to meetup.com slash words to write by. Great. So before we start the podcast, I scored a really great interview with a memoirist that you may have heard of. Yeah, this one's pretty famous. Hi, I'm Ramey Little, and my husband, Tim Bauerschmidt, and I wrote the memoir, Driving Miss Norma. Can you give a short description about what the memoir is about? Absolutely. My husband and I live full-time in an RV, and we travel around North America, spend a lot of our time in the winters in Mexico, and every summer we made our way to northern Michigan where Tim's parents lived. They are very stoic and would never let us know if anything was wrong on our way one year to our visit. We got there, and they didn't greet us at the door like we usually were accustomed to them, and the short story, Tim's dad died 10 days later, and two days after that, his mom got a uterine cancer diagnosis at 90 years old. So the book is about our journey through our caregiving experience with Tim's mother, and she chose not to have any treatment. And we lived in a 19-foot Airstream travel trailer at the time and, and said, you know, we can find a care home for you, or you can, like lots of adult children of aging parents, you can come live with us if you'd like to, knowing that, you know, our house had wheels. 
she she said yes i would like to come along and off we went and so the memoir is about our journey so initially you wrote about your experiences in a blog in a set of facebook posts mhm did you blog before that or was this new Yeah, I did. Just travel blog, you know, it was just here we are and here's some pretty pictures and some of the cultural experiences that we were having. So, you know, I might have had a dozen followers. It was not not a big deal. It was just something fun for me to do and share our journeys with our friends and family. Did you find that the style of writing and the contents of your blogs changed when you started writing about the travels with Norma? Um Yeah. <laughs> we didn't write a whole lot about caregiving. In fact, we didn't even know that term when we were on the road. We were just like, yeah, we're traveling with our mom and our mother-in-law. The transition was that we really highlighted her journey in the blog because she was not a big traveler and she had not had all these experiences that we had had. So it was really traveling through her lens that changed the way I was writing on that journey with her. Part of the story is that your blog became incredibly popular and you got a deal to write it up as a book, correct? Yeah. 6 months into our journey, there were over 500 people following us and we were sitting down at breakfast one day going, "500 people, we don't even know 500 people. How could this be possible?" And shortly after that, it went crazy viral and ended up closer to a half a million people following us. And so in that process we were approached by several um literary agents and said, you know, you have a good story here, you might want to consider a book. And so that was the original introduction to being authors. And Tim and I looked at each other and said, we are not writing a book. We're busy. I mean, our number one priority was Norma and then taking care of all the travel arrangements and and now we had millions of people following us, so we were a little bit dodging those people so that we will, could still have some of our own peace and quiet. Oh, you froze. Let's hope it comes back. Oh, I lost you. I don't know how much you missed. Okay. Don't worry about this this is this is all going to be edited. It's going to sound great. Okay. So, we lost you for a bit because you guys are currently on a beach in Baja in your RV. Yes. But you were saying about how when you're traveling with Norma you weren't thinking about writing a book. Not at all. In fact, we started getting approached by these literary agents and Tim and I just kind of looked at each other and said, "We are not writing a book. Is that the agreement?" "Yes, honey, that's the agreement. We are not writing a book. We're busy doing other things." We got thousands of letters from people every day and we got this beautiful note from a woman who had been the caregiver for her grandmother who had cancer and she was following our story as her grandmother was declining and she said how helpful it was for her to see this joy in the process of end of life so she wrote this beautiful letter and at the end she said by the way i work for a literary agent and if you are ever interested in writing a book you have a really good story here and you know here's my contact information and so at that point we thought you know that her energy felt good to us and maybe she was right maybe we needed to consider this and so we 
came up with a little meeting over the phone with her and her boss. And they said, oh, okay, let's get you signed up. And we went, oh, wait a second. We don't do anything until we sit down and break bread with people and, you know, get to know them. And we're not going to sign any kind of a contract remotely. And they said, well, where are you right now? We're, we're headed up the East Coast of the U.S. at the time. And, and they said, well, we're in between Philadelphia and New York. And we said, you're on our way. They said, come park in our driveway. We did and really hit it off the stories that we were telling them about our journey. And at first they thought this would be a nice book of short stories, anecdotes of things that we did along the way with a 90 year old who hadn't traveled much. And after we had dinner with our agent, she went to bed that night and at three o'clock in the morning, she woke up and she went, wait a second, this isn't a book of short stories. This is a memoir and couldn't wait to tell us that in the morning. And we, <laughs> knowing nothing about publishing, we were like, okay, it's a memoir. And, and we said, you know, we're very busy and we don't know how we could possibly write this book. And we're very flattered. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll get you a, a ghostwriter. It'll all work out. And we're like, oh, ghostwriter. Okay, that might be good. So they found this woman. She had a relationship with the agent. And we were like, okay, it's going to be a ghostwriter. She said, all right, I'm going to embed with you for a couple of days and get this started. And after three days, we fired the ghostwriter and said, this is our story. We need to write it. And so that's what happened. So you were very familiar with writing blog posts at this point. Mm -hmm. You really knew the material because you were continually writing every single day. What changed when you were writing a book versus a blog post? I think the arc, you know, this is all language that we learned as we went, but understanding the arc of the story and going into the process of just starting to write the book really having a clear vision of the beginning, middle, and end, and what some of the highlights are, the things in our past that have impacted this journey. So that was the first thing we really needed to understand. And then we also didn't know what the end of the story was going to be. You know, there's a deadline, and is she going to be alive or not? We don't know. Where are we going to be? So we had some contingency plans for the end of the story. But posting just is kind of stream of consciousness for me. Just, hey, this is this wonderful thing that happened to us today or or not, you know, things that weren't so wonderful. But, but with the book, the understanding of the big picture was critical for us. Was there anything in writing the book that was harder than you thought it would be or anything that you thought was easier than you thought it would be? Well, it was interesting and we haven't mentioned this yet, but the book was written by both my husband, Tim, and I, and we essentially alternated chapters. There's a little mix up there on purpose. We're not every other chapter, but the idea was to get the voice of both of us from our perspective. What we found is that our writing styles are very, very different. <laughs> so I could sit down and like barrel out 9,000 words in a sitting, and Tim, who was trained as a journalist. So he is used to how many words can I fit in this little cube to tell the whole story. So the fewer the words, the better is what he felt like that was his writing style. And so he would agonize over finding just the perfect words. And I was just like 
writing this story like crazy and I'd get my chapter done at the end of the week and he'd get his chapter done at the end of the week and his was a couple hundred words and mine was many thousands. And so we had to sort that kind of disparate um, style out. But surprises, I don't know even how to answer that question, Kim, because we had no idea what we were getting into. (laughs) Probably for the best that you did. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said a little bit about this, but you wanted to have alternating chapters because you kind of wanted both perspectives. Yeah. How did you decide who wrote which chapter? It really depended on what was singing to us. There's a chapter about early on when I'm kind of laying the groundwork of this journey and we left on the trip and it was important for me to talk about how it felt going into this. We're not parents. We have never cared for anything other than our dog and our life. And so that really sung to me. I deal with major depression. And here I am now in this situation that I don't know if I can manage it or not. And so what is that going to look like? So that made sense for me to do that one. And there's pieces that are critical to understand Tim's background and his family structure and the things that um, made him who he is developmentally. And so those are things it made sense for him to write about. And then there were others that could have gone either way. And so we kind of split those ones up. And and mostly those are the the ones where we're talking about our travels and uh, the impact that that had. You said you were under deadline. How long did it take you to write your memoir? I don't have it broken down in time. So you'll have to do the math. We started writing in early August and our deadline for the first draft of the entire book was November 1st. And so it was fast. And Norma died in the middle of it. She died on September 30th. So there were pieces of it that were written live. And so what we had worked out with the publisher was that we would hand in a very rough draft of of one chapter a week. And so that meant that each of us had two weeks to hand in a chapter because we were alternating the chapters. And we were starting kind of from beginning to end. And then we realized that she's declining in the middle of this. And so I started writing the end before I finished the beginning because I wanted to capture that decline and what it was like to live that in our really unique circumstances. So that was a few months. And we kept getting this feedback from the editors at HarperCollins. And they're like, this is great. Keep on going. You guys are doing awesome. And, And we're like, right on. We're better at this than we thought we would be. It wasn't until we handed everything in and we drove to Mexico and they said, you know, we'll do some of the editing once you get settled in Mexico. And it ended up being 10,000 edits. You know, it took us longer to edit the book than it did to write it. And and we're like, oh, maybe we weren't that good. They just wanted to get that draft done. So it was really nice to have the encouragement and not get us hung up with our writing style. How did the book change with the edits? So some of it was just really basic grammar and structure and that kind of thing. The one thing that we realized as we went in the feedback that we got is that we had Ringo was our dog and he was really significant part of our team. He's a therapy dog. It was the four of us on this journey together. And at one point in the journey, he almost died. And it was 
just devastating for us to walk that path and think, oh my God, we're going to lose, we're going to lose Ringo. So when we were writing about it, we hadn't written that much about Ringo. The story, so much of it was about Norma and her journey. And when the editors got to the chapter that we talk about Ringo dying and how horrifying that was, they said, we're not in love with Ringo. You haven't allowed us to fall in love with Ringo, so we can't share this panic and this grief with you. Help us to fall in love with Ringo. So going back in the editing process to do that was really important. And so he's inserted all over the place where his spot should have been anyway. My final question is, I'm sure as someone who's written a memoir and traveling all over the place, you run into people that say, I want to write a memoir. I'm thinking about writing a memoir. What is your advice? You know, that's so funny because that happened here on the beach this week because I knew I was going to talk to you. And everyone here has an, an incredible story. And we believe that to our toes that everyone has a story worth writing down. And the first thing that people say is, who would want to read it? And I say, well, maybe you will. And that that's the start. And if you can write a story that you would like to read, then maybe someone else will too, just starting to write it. And so our friend Two Doors Down started his memoir yesterday because of you. <laughs> <laughs> and he came and he read the intro to us. It's hilarious. He's a very good writer. And we we're like, this is really cool. Don't be afraid and just get it down. I mean, that was the lesson for that first draft is get the story down. And you can always go back and edit and fix things, but but just go for it, you know? Yeah. Fabulous. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure. It, it's It's been wonderful. Thanks, Kim. Yeah. So that was a really fun interview to do. <laughs> You're so good at those interviews, Kim. I love them. You know, it's kind of, I guess, egotistical to think I actually listen to our podcast, but when I have to listen to it to write the show notes, right? So I'll sit there and I'll listen to the interviews first. I'm just like, oh, that's great. I'm so going to use that. It does make for something new to hear when you're editing or when you're listening to the podcast. Yeah, but they are. They're very delightful. They're very helpful. Okay. And we are on chapter four. So last chapter, I felt there really wasn't too much useful, but this chapter I really liked. Why? What did you really like? I thought she addressed some interesting philosophical takes on writing the truth. The chapter is called The Truth, What, Why, How? And she actually framed some things in different ways than I'd thought of before. Because we've talked about the truth in writing memoir before. We've bounced around, but I think that she had a slightly different take on this and made it worthwhile as a chapter by itself. Yeah. Some people don't trust memoir at all. They don't like reading it because they're like, there's no way this is even true. <laughs> Whereas people who do read memoir, they take it as the truth. And if you lie to them, you end up on Oprah and not in a good way. <laughs> so this is a very important chapter. I'm actually really um, fascinated since you don't write memoir that much, or at least you have only for this podcast. I'm really curious to hear what you have to say as a reader when you pick up a memoir. How truthful do you think it is? Um, I give them the benefit of the doubt that it is as truthful as they can as they can make it, but at the same time it's not as critical to my enjoyment that they be telling me the absolute truth. I kind of take it as 
a certain amount of leeway with writing to make a story work well. And I'd rather have a memoir that is enjoyable and maybe a little bit fidgety on the truth than one that's absolutely correct and boring. But, you know, what's really also fascinating about you is you have a journalism background. Right. So she, like she talks about research, right? And how that might change your voice. And it actually makes sense because if you read like newspapers or magazines, right, you can tell that there's a voice there. When someone is writing like research nonfiction, the voice tends to come out almost like not a clone, but similarly to like almost all the other news writers, except for famous creative nonfiction writers like Krakauer or people who insert their personal take into it. Like Joan Didion, she has a definite voice, right? She's writing nonfiction, but she's doing it from a very personal lens. When I write a newspaper article, especially a newspaper article where it's news, not just like um, a feature, which is more retrospective or, you know, not quite cutting edge, there's a particular jauntiness to the voice that I use. And it actually makes it easier to write because it's a very confident voice. And I just like, write it on out. This is what you're going to read. <laughs> no, right. people were stunned by such and such and such and such. <laughs> I mean, do you write creative nonfiction? You know who I'm talking about, like Krakauer, Didion, like, do you have any like personal essays that have research in them? I've written personal essays and I don't use the news voice for personal essays. I use something much closer to myself, which probably isn't as confident or as immediately engaging. Okay. So I don't know if you'd be surprised, but my academic writing, it sometimes comes out and I don't mean it to come out, but like when I write academic papers or when I have, my voice is so different. I'm almost bitchy. Crotchety, <laughs> right. maybe? Crotchety. Sorry, yes. We don't say that word anymore. It's rude. Uh, no, crotchety. I sound crotchety. Very, you know, almost with an accent. I seem very British almost in the sense of this is the way it is. <laughs> you know, like in Star Wars when they make the people in the Empire all British. Oh, yes. Well, they always make the bad guys British no matter what crazy world they're in. <laughs> right. Anyway, we're getting off topic. I think we should jump to the chapter and kind of go through it as she laid it out. She starts off with a great quote at the beginning. Lots of good quotes in this chapter, too. And this is a quote by Mary Clearman Blue. For my part, I struggled for a long time with the conflicting claims of the exact truth of the story and its emotional truth as I perceived it. And so she's talking about factual truth and emotional truth. And I was thinking we could start with the definition, how you take those two. I consider factual truth like if it's doing research, it's dates, it's times, it's things like that. Emotional truth is you kind of responding to the facts or telling your side of the facts, which can sometimes make the truth fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And also emotional truth in the sense of you maybe even understanding that what you are writing about, you remember, but you're acknowledging that maybe it wasn't exactly as it, as you're saying it happened. What did you take as it? I took factual both as research, but also as something that actually happened. Like you would say, you know, these eight people were at the dinner party. We have that in the calendar. We know those eight people were there. This other person wasn't. So things that can be proven one way or another. And then emotional truths, that's getting closer to like the way you see the world, the way you were affected by things, stuff that is 
true for you, but somebody else going through the same circumstances might have come out very different. So I'm just going to give an example here. So once wrote a piece about my grandmother and she had Alzheimer's and I moved her out of the house because we had to take her to a home, someone to take care of her. Because even the caregivers that we had in the home, they were not equipped to deal with the state that she was in. So truthfully, I wrote that we had to take my grandmother out of the house. That is a fact. We took her out of the house. I put her in the car and I drove her. And the whole piece kind of revolves around that. But I think the emotional truth is me describing her house as a kind of sarcophagus. Mm -hmm. And all the jars were really just all her stuff (laughs) that she had hoarded and accumulated over the years. So although true, she was a hoarder and she had all that stuff in her house. Me calling it a sarcophagus, I think, is the emotional truth. Yeah, that's a good example. Mm -hmm. Cool. And the feelings you had about, I mean, because she wasn't dead at that point, but she had moved on in a way that is very different. You always associate her with that house and suddenly she was gone and this was the remains in the house. And so, you know, she wasn't dead, but emotionally she had left. Yep. And she was so tied to that house. And in fact, she only lived a week after we took her out of the house. But if she'd already been to the point where the hairdressers could take care of her, I think she was slipping already. Okay, cool. So we've got a pretty good, solid understanding of emotional truth versus factual truth. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting how later she mentioned that uh, you have to be prepared to check certain facts just in case you get fact checked. Now, I would worry about that if it's like a blog or something, but an editor is going to fact check, right? Yeah, you can be a little bit more loose if you've got an editor. Not everyone's going to have an editor. I mean, if someone self-publishes, they might not have an editor. Yeah, okay. If someone self-publishes. So I got fact checked just now because I have my uh, manuscript in the developmental editing stage. And on the first couple pages, I got a little note because we're doing it in Google Docs. And I noticed that, you know, I had said that my main characters had become famous because they were TikTok stars. And she wrote, you know, you said this is happening in 2015. TikTok didn't arrive until 2016. I'm like, oh, man, they got to be YouTube stars. Oh, dang. (laughs) Oh, TikTok would have been perfect. Oh, so you're not changing the date, huh? I don't think I can. I'll take a look. But, you know, it's one of those things like I'm doing this properly. Nope. TikTok did not start in 2015. So, okay. So, so, but you have an editor. Yes. Yes. And they catch stuff like that. So that one of the issues with reading a book that comes out of the, maybe the 90s, this one also comes out of the 90s, right? If this book was was redone, if Barrington revised it, she would probably change that section. Oh, because people could just look it up online? That, but this is like the pre-Google era, right? Right. I mean, it's easy to check dates. I sometimes do that. I'm just like, oh, I'm writing, you know, about 1988, right? In 1988, I was nine. But do I remember like the songs? Like I remember liking certain songs, but. Yeah, like, did they actually come out at that time or were they something later on? Also, when she talks about how difficult it is to do research, this was also pre-Google. So it's gotten a lot easier. And I think people are expected now to check that stuff. I liked how she talked about, um, she's got a quote in here about how basically human memory isn't a tool for us to remember the past. It's kind of for what to deal with the present. And so our memories change over time, partly because that is more useful for us. Like if you, as a primitive caveman, ate that one berry and got super, super sick, it wouldn't be that important for 
you know, that memory to make sure it was in that date or that berry was in that particular location. It's just mentally going, oh, I don't want to eat that berry. There's a quote here. Again, it's by somebody else. Many details are lost, usually in ways that serve the self in its present situation, not the self of 10 or 20 or 40 years ago when the remembered events took place. Memory is short, is not a record of the past, but an evolving myth of understanding the psyche spins from its engagement with the world. I thought that was a great way to think about it because, you know, we're always like, well, my memory is faulty. Well, it's not necessarily faulty. Maybe that's a feature. Yeah, memory is like totally fallible. And that's the thing. Your brain is meant to be efficient. It doesn't make sense to remember that day or time you ate the berry. Mm -hmm. It just matters that you got sick. And before we leave the uh, factual truth section, I also loved this line. A word of warning here. The events as you remember them will never be the same in your memory once you have turned them into a memoir. She talks about how she wrote about this time after her parents' death when she was living in Spain, and now she really can't actually remember how it really was there. She just remembers how she wrote it in the memoir. I was thinking about that, actually, and I was realizing that some of the things I have written down now, I've been working on it for so long, I think about what I wrote instead of the memory itself. I mean, not not completely. Maybe it might matter later if I publish and years go by, but yeah, I can see what's happening. Or you can't remember the memory just as itself. You have to remember it in the context of the memoir and the things you pulled out of it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, hopefully I retain some of it in its original form. <laughs> Actually, I am writing about things that happened not too long ago. So that would be kind of interesting if all of that is shaping how I'm going to remember it later. Yeah, something to think about. Yeah. Okay, and now we're moving on to emotional truth. The basic idea here is that it can be painful to make private things public. I blame that on a lot of my procrastination. I don't want to go back and think about it uh-huh. and pick it apart and then give it to someone else eventually. It's the act of remembering the bad things that happened to you are painful and you'd rather just not think about them. Right. And not only that, but put them under a freaking microscope. Yeah. And the other part that's going to be painful is whether or not you're going to hurt other people around you by saying these things. Have you run into that? I mean, a lot of your family is dead now, so. Right. I mean, I when my mother was alive and I was writing this, I felt a little bad. I was like, I don't want to make her feel bad because she's already like feeling bad about everything. Before she died, I was maybe a little not so um, deliberate, you know, in certain details to make her not look so awful sometimes. But now that she's dead, I still kind of feel that way. It's like, well, that's kind of messed up on her memory. But I'm like, but she did do it. So, yeah, <laughs> I get kind of pulled one way or another. I'm more worried about the people that are alive and not putting them in a bad light, but them trying to dispute or get attention for something that I put work into. So it might not be a conflict because you don't want to hurt their feelings, but it might be a conflict because you don't want to deal with their feelings. Right. It's like if they were worried about how it would feel later, they should have been careful. Like they shouldn't have been so mean. <laughs> There's a famous quote. I forget who said it. It was something like, well, if you didn't want me to write about it, you should have been nicer. <laughs> I don't know. When you write stuff, you, you write fiction, right? But we're writing these activities. Do you feel a little like worried or like do you revise certain things? Oh, yeah. 
you know, I do tell my friends and family to listen to the podcast and like, it's like, wait, it's going to, I could say this, I could do this writing, but if we're going to read it for an exercise, do I really want to go there? So you, you've been careful then about what you've written in your activities. Yeah, I definitely, um, most of my exercises have been fairly nice. It's funny because there isn't anything terribly dark in my past. There isn't anything terribly detrimental about any of the people around me growing up or all that. But she says here that even a joyful story can irritate someone who saw it differently. I use all that stuff in fiction and I layer it and I change it around. I switch things up and I, I, I like using it. But yeah, that'd be kind of uncomfortable. Like, oh, we listened to the podcast when you were talking about such and such. Yeah, but your family's still alive, right? Yeah, they're alive, but it doesn't even have to be a dark secret. It could just be that one thing mom said to me at that table that one time. And, you know, maybe she wasn't thinking about it. And she didn't mean it that way. But boy, do I want her friends to hear that she said that thing? Yeah. Yeah, that could be, that could come back to you, right? Mm-hmm. Also, it hurts her feelings, but also then like you're you're on trial. So Barrington writes, why indeed risk causing unpleasantness? Because for some reason, particular to you and your life, you need to tell the truth. I think part of a memoir is there is something you really do need to tell. Right. Some things are just, well, she does mention later that you don't want to write a book out of revenge because your reader's going to know and they're not going to like it and it's not going to come across the way you think it is. Mm -hmm. Right. And some things that you write about, if you feel like that's revenge, then you shouldn't put it in. Something be like, you were horrible to me. Now I'm going to tell everybody what you've done. Mm-hmm. Unless that had to do something with the theme of your memoir, probably doesn't need to be in there. And there's another quote in here. We watch the memoirist make sense of her life. And no matter how different our circumstances, we find some commonality with her and feel a little less alone in the world. I think that part of the reason why a person writes a memoir is because they realize there's something important to their story that goes just beyond them and beyond the experiences they have to something that will touch other people. In the interview that I had at the beginning of the podcast, Ramey talks about how they got letters from people when they were writing their blog about how meaningful them sharing their journey with her mother, her mother-in-law, was to people who also had relatives that were, were getting old or they needed caretaking. And one person's experience echoed with other people in similar circumstances. That would be an interesting activity to figure out how your memoir would be helping somebody else. Like what reader is going to get the most out of it? Because I'm racking my brain right now. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the person that's probably most going to get something out of this story is if they have like really bad family members. I don't know. Now I'm kind of wondering, like maybe that's something missing. Like I can't quite decide who would actually benefit from my book. Well, people love The Glass Castle. That's true. See, I like that book because I'm like, oh, she moved a bunch of times. I moved a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. Right. And she makes sense of a lot of abuse, which I can like look at and go, okay, yeah, I could see that. And I could kind of like compare that to my own things that I've had to deal with. Yeah. On the one hand, you feel like your story is very unique to you. You say, well, you know, I moved a lot of time. Most people don't move as much. On the other hand, there is enough of the population out there who has had those experiences 
that would want to read about something like that, or people who have friends and family that were in that particular circumstance. There's also that. Like me, myself, I didn't experience that. But by reading your memoir, I really do understand that perspective much better. Oh, so why did you like The Glass Castle? Because it was such an incredibly weird life that she was living. Okay. Yeah, I know. I mean, it was like wow, I can't believe her family did all this stuff. And they lived so close to the edge. And, you know, then they fell off. Like the fact that at a part of the story where they were living in Appalachia and, you know, everybody was poor, everyone didn't have enough to eat. But she was over at her friends and they were picking the meat off the chicken, you know, to to make a stock or something else. They were trying to get every last one. And like her mother's like, wow, girl, you got a lot of, like she got all the meat off the chicken because she was, that close to starving all the time that she did not let any little bit of food go. I mean, that was like such an amazing detail. So you you just enjoy the writing and her story. I enjoyed her story a lot. Because it was gripping. Yeah. So the thing about her story is that it was just fascinating to you or? Yeah. And it helped me understand. Um, I mean, you see homeless people on the street and you wonder how it was that they got there. That's true. And you see other people that say they had these, you know, horrible lives and they're very successful. And it just, it's shown a light on maybe how that could have happened. And it wouldn't have been the same if it was fiction, even if it was fiction based on her own life, then it'd be imagining. But the fact that she wrote it as memoir, I mean, it was real as much as we can tell. That's true. That's true. She was a journalist. Of course, when something's that famous, if she was lying about it, we would have heard. Yeah, by now. We definitely would have heard. She's also a journalist. So I think she knows how far she can take it. You have to think of the individual, specifically like a relative that might get angry, but also your memoir might anger like the community. Mm -hmm. Like she was mentioning, she was talking about Alice Walker who wrote The Color Purple. You know, she was an integral part of putting the movie together and the community got really mad at her. Yeah. You know, she was publicly attacked. There's a quote in here in the book that says, it was said that I hated men, black men in particular, that my work was injurious to black male and female relationships that my ideas of equality and tolerance were harmful, even destructive to the black community. Like you might piss off a wider community through your memoir, depending on the topic you write about. And I sort of worry a little bit. I mean, it would be something I guess good to worry about because that would mean I got published, but I sometimes worry that someone's going to take my story of being poor and twist it into something that's, I don't like politically. Yeah. And similar to Alice Walker, uh, Philip Roth also was very alienated from the Jewish community from his writing. But that's one of those things that if you're a good enough writer, in the end, they're going to thank you for it. Yeah. They just won't at the time. Yeah. Man, I love Philip Roth. Okay. Last topic of this is taboo and the idea that not only can your writing be painful to writing, but it can also be painful to read. Like, nobody wants to read about child abuse. It hurts. Right. I used to call it abuse porn. It's like you're writing about an abuse you had, but you don't add the literary aspect to it to make it, like, good. You're just whining. Yeah, although when we add porn to it, it means it's kind of this guilty pleasure that we feel guilty for reading, but we want to read. Oh, I guess you're right. But there's sometimes where there's accounts where it is painful. Like, if you're reading accounts of the Holocaust. You feel shitty reading that. And you really need to keep saying, no, I am going to finish reading this because it's it's valid. It's worthwhile. But it's not fun. Yeah. I read 
a few Holocaust memoirs. And I feel like it's kind of my duty to read it. Right. You know, living in this era, knowing that my grandfather was in World War II and all these things, it's like, I have to read this because this cannot happen again. <laughs> but, you know, if if bad things like that happen to you in your life and you've gone through all the steps and you feel that this is something you need to write and, you know, you come to peace with the fallout, then the next step is how do you make it palatable to your readers to read stuff that's not very pleasant? Yeah. She even says you must ask yourself how to write in a way that is engaging without compromising the truth. Some writers use humor and I do. Mm -hmm. A lot of dark humor, because how else are you going to look at it without it being a big sob story? Yeah. Or just one thing after another after another. Yeah. She says the tone of the writing is the utmost importance. I marked that one, too. It goes on. I can read about almost any subject if I feel basic trust in and respect for the writer. So voice is really important or the tone. Tone. I guess I call it voice, but she calls it tone. Well, she says a little block out thing that tone is the changeable aspect of voice. Mm. So the idea is that you write with your voice who you are, but you might feel differently at different times. And the, the tone of the writing may change, especially like if you're going into a section that's hard to read. You might pull out some more tricks or some sort of way to make a little distance or to frame it, to frame the perspective a little bit to make it a bit more palatable. I do notice that when I get super snarky in my writing, it's usually when I'm brushing over details about a person. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, oh, my, my father was such a bad person, blah, 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 blah. This is all the crap he did. I kind of do it in a way of being funny because it's so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the only way I think you can see it. But also, I don't want pity at all. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm allergic to it. And so I'm constantly making sure that there's none of that in there because I don't myself. I don't want it from anybody else. So you want to repel it. So I use humor to kind of repel that response. I don't want. Yet another good quote by Nancy Mayers. It's not enough from a literary point of view to have a very bad experience, or for that matter, a very good experience, and live to tell the tale. Illness, disability, and death can and must provide no proof against the rigorous aesthetic judgment. Or as V.S. Pritchard said, it's all in the art. You get no credit for living. So the one last thing that she had in this chapter is, let me read the quote. Telling your truth, the difficult ones, the joyous ones, and all the ones in between is a big part of what makes for good writing. But it also brings you pleasure in the process of writing. And as we're digging into finding these truths and and allowing ourselves to write about these truths and going back and making sure that they're palatable to the reader, all those steps should have a certain amount of enjoyment because you are actively getting stuff down on paper. There was one quote that I really liked, which was, what is most important is not that we agree, but that we each think about what is valuable for us to contribute and that we make conscious choices. Mm -hmm. So depending on the choices you make that might amplify the joy you're getting from the process of writing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think this was a really good chapter for just turning around ideas about truth and for someone writing a memoir and the, as they struggle with various aspects of the truth to kind of give them an outside perspective of how to go about it. Yeah. So far, I think this is the most valuable chapter. Yeah. 
And if I were teaching memoir, which I won't until I publish something, but if I was teaching memoir, I would copy this chapter out of my book or out of this book and give it to my students. And now for our favorite part of the podcast, or for me personally, my favorite part of the podcast, <laughs> bearing a bit of truth, we have suggestions for writing. It's on page 77. I would like to say that we are not doing number six. We're not, Kim? No. Why not? <laughs> Write a graphic sex scene from your life. Be specific, physical, and clear. Try to avoid using metaphors or cliches. We're definitely not doing that. <laughs> so wait, why do you think she says to avoid using metaphors or cliches? What's the point of that exercise? I think she's basically picking something that is about as uncomfortable to write about as possible and forcing you to write about it as honestly as possible. If nothing else, it makes everything else seem much easier. Yeah. Knowing students, if I gave these activities, if I like photocopied this, I would just like block out that one before I photocopied because students don't follow directions. <laughs> and I'll say, do not do number six. On the off chance that somebody wasn't listening and they did number six and you had to read about it. Nope. Oh, I wouldn't. I would have gotten to the first gross part and stopped and then just said, I stopped reading here. I've done that before. I stopped reading here and I specifically told you not to do that. Which one are we doing, Kim? I was thinking number one, think of an instance that one or more people might see very differently than you. Tell the story beginning with words. This is how I see what happened. I like that. That's a good one. I like number three, but it didn't include like crafty stuff. So I can see why you picked number one, but I like to make a list of everything you consider taboo for yourself. Think about which things on the list you could begin to write about. In the past, we've had writing exercises much more obvious. Like this is how you practice this technique. This is how you do this thing. But she really does have, these suggestions are really kind of for your own personal getting things straight in your mind, write a list of taboos. If I was only writing this for myself, and not to be reviewed on the podcast, that actually many of these, including number six, would be a really good thing to practice. Right, but not doing a podcast. But not doing a podcast. <laughs> All right. All right. So let's uh, let's do number number one. Okay. Number one's a good one. All right, dear listener, just hang in for a bit and we'll be done. Okay, another exercise written. And today we'll be workshopping mine. As we just said, it's a memoir written from different perspectives. All right. So uh, this time we're going to start with Kim and she's going to be on the normal podcast. And then my response to this prompt will be on the bonus episode on Patreon. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to just start reading it or do you want to talk about it first? Well, real quick before you start, what did you think of this prompt? Do you feel like it was a good prompt? Did it like set you up? Like, did you have ideas like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to write. Did it take you a while? So at first I didn't have any idea and then it clicked in my head what I was going to write about. And once it clicked, it's like, yep, that's what I'm going to write about. So that wasn't too hard. I tried to approach it more as a memoir writing this time than opposed to like the last one I had a good piece, but I didn't get as deep. So I used some of the ideas of the previous podcast exercise. I get a chance to try out more of a memoir style of writing. And did you enjoy it? Yeah. You know, sometimes you just get a fun piece to write. I've been enjoying the stuff we've been writing for this just because they're stories from my own life and fun to recount them. And do you feel that these exercises are helping you write your fiction 
or vice versa? Do you feel like your fiction helps you write your memoir stuff? I think fiction helps me write the memoir because I've got more tricks I can use to make the writing work, like the structure to work. But they're fun. And I think they're good writing exercises. You know, it's nice to have a short piece that you can finish when you're in the midst of writing something really long that takes a while. Cool. All right. Well, let's get to it. Okay. And I think I'll just start this without any preamble and we can just talk about the details afterwards. The way I remember it happening was watching my thin bike wheel zip past clumps of wet leaves and looking up to see the hatchback's back window less than two feet from me. In my peripheral vision, to my right, there was a figure standing on his porch holding a coffee mug, and to my left, the yellow school bus I had been matching speeds with lurched to a sudden stop. I slammed on my brakes. My body lifted over my handlebars and fell through the glass. My knee thudded into some part of the car's body, and that hurt. But my arms, now resting under piles of safety glass in the trunk, felt fine. I stood, feet planted awkwardly in my red Schwinn's twisted frame, and shuffled over to the sidewalk to sit on the curb as people rushed towards me. It all had happened so fast. My name is Kim Stevens, I said. My mom's name is Mary Stevens. Our phone number is 437-2572. I thought about what that person on his porch must have experienced, enjoying morning coffee only to see this kid slam into his car. I imagined him being just as shocked and disbelieving as I would have been at something so unpredictable and stupid that happened in front of me. But maybe, instead, he had seen me speeding too fast down the hill and worried as an older, wiser adult might that I wasn't paying enough attention. And then that worry turned to certainty as he realized I was going to crash, that I didn't have any head protection, the one wore helmets in the early 90s, and hearing the stomach-churning crunch of metal impacting metal and the shattering of windshield. He would have rushed forward with a sick certainty that he'd find my bloody, mangled body gasping for breath, or worse. And if that was what he was feeling, he must have been so relieved when he saw me stand up. You're not supposed to move a person that's been in an accident, I heard someone say. She moved herself, someone else replied. And another person, maybe, I think there must have been at least four people gathered around me, said, We've called your mother. She's on her way. My fourth grade brother, Scott, was still in the house when my mother picked up the kitchen phone. Your sister's been hit by a bus, she shouted, and raced for her car. Scott said she pulled out of the driveway and shifted from reverse to drive without slowing down. Her tires screeched and left skid marks on the road as she sped off, leaving Scott alone in the house. That's how he recalled it later. Was he introspective enough at ten years to understand the implications of what could have happened if I had, in fact, been hit by a bus? Around that time, a small child had been killed by a school bus in our town. Maybe he sat there, his brain spitting on all the horrible futures in which I was seriously hurt or gone. Maybe the really unnerving thing was the speed at which my mother disappeared, the non-mom driving behavior. He must have finished his breakfast and caught the elementary school bus. I don't think I ever asked him what he felt like after mom left. I know my mother was experiencing one of the worst moments of her life. She worked part-time as a nurse in the town's emergency room. She'd seen people who had been in car crashes, seen how a body can be wrecked, seen people die. I'm her first child, the one that turned her into a parent, and she'd seen me off to school not more than half an hour ago, her high-achieving, healthy high schooler. Back then, I had no idea what being a parent was like. Now I do. It must have been agony, driving alone in that car down slow streets, needing to be with me right now, 
but until she arrived, being in a bubble where maybe this wasn't happening. And then she would recount later, I saw you sitting up talking to people and I knew everything was going to be okay. Wow. <laughs> you know, you just really nailed it with this one. It helps with the subject matter. Well, no, it's not always easy to take your life and shape it. So what really struck me about this piece was how like expertly organized it was. Like you balanced the different perspectives through your musing about people. Like, oh, if I were that guy, this is what I would be thinking, right? My brother said this, perhaps he thought this, or my mom, you know, I'm a mom now and I'm seeing it from her perspective. Like you like killed this prompt. I don't know. I just, I'm pretty, I'm very impressed. So this story happened when I was in 10th grade and I drove my bicycle into the back of a parked car. Uh, I ended up getting like over 80 stitches in my head. I didn't mention that it was really bloody, but yeah. So it was very fortunate because the safety glass took all the impact. So I didn't get a concussion or anything like that. I was extremely fortunate, but it was a pretty major accident. It was something that's very stuck in my mind because it was very eventful that day. And so I remember the various lines that people spoke quite well. And I remember the imagery from that. I remember seeing that guy and I remember thinking that, you know, like saying, what's this kid doing? So I had all that stuff. But then the exercise wants you to look deeper and try to imagine. I'd never really explored what that guy was really thinking or what my brother was thinking or my mom. So it was a good exercise that way. Nice. This detail right here really got to me. You said, um, hearing the stomach churning crunch of metal impacting metal and the shattering of windshield. Oh. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. I like the sounds of that sentence. Um, it's very visceral. <laughs> it's very visceral. I feel it everywhere. I feel it physically and mentally and emotionally. Ooh. And somebody really called my mom and said, your daughter's been hit by a bus. They actually said a bus? Yeah. Why did they say that? Because the, the school bus was going right alongside me and it stopped at the very moment that I hit. So they thought you got hit by a bus, like you got slammed by the bus and then pushed forward into this parked car? Who, who knows? But that's the message they gave my mom. Oh, so you hit the car. You hit it so hard that you went through the windshield. That's insanity. It was kind of a steep hill. Dang. <laughs> Dang, I that's crazy. I love that you had your brother in there. Mm -hmm. And how instead of staying from the point of view of your mom, you know, backing out, I mean, you did put her in there, but it was your brother watching her and giving that perspective. There's this thing, I forget the author's name. I believe it was McDonald. I'm not sure. I'll have to look it up. But there's this famous essay that people who teach creative nonfiction always teach, and it's called The Art of Perhapsing you know, for memoir, where one of the tenets of memoir is where you, you start musing about things and you have to kind of like guess at stuff. Well, perhaps this happened or perhaps that happened or perhaps this is the way it played out. So it kind of signals to the reader that oh, it's kind of a fiction, but it's an informed fiction. This is like textbook perhapsing. From different perspectives, like that's, I just, you just juggled it really, really well. And the thing is, if I was writing this for real, I would obviously call up my mom and ask her. I would call my, my brother and ask him. So there'd be a lot less perhapsing at that stage. But because the exercise asked me to get into their heads outside of asking them, 
that's that's what you have to do, the perhapsing. Yeah, but part of the art is perhapsing too. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you should talk to your brother. I would almost think that you'd write this and then you'd go talk to your brother and your mom. It might actually sound better this way. I think it sounds better because it's nice and short. Yeah, it's economical. And the other benefit of perhapsing is I can choose the words to describe what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I had my mom's own words, my mother is delightful. She also is, you know, a mom and very sentimental. And there would be a lot more religion and thank Godding in it if she, my mother was telling the story. Right. And then it might switch the theme too. You know, then you might have to talk about that and talk about your relationship with your mom and all this other stuff. You didn't have to do any of that because of the choices that you made. Mm-hmm. So one reason to do an exercise like this is it forces you to make those perhapses in your mind, as opposed to when you're writing a memoir, you might feel compelled to go and talk to everybody and get everybody's side of the story to tell it properly. But this, in a way, gives you the power as a writer to really frame the story the way you want to and make it go the way you want it to. Yeah, definitely. Um, Also, it's helpful for someone like me who, you know, a lot of characters are dead. Mm-hmm. And I can't just call them up and ask. I have to rely on perhapsing. So that allows me to be able to like actually write a story without their input anymore. Well, so here's the thing. I did not read that we had to include other perspectives. So you took this prompt, I think, to a new level. The prompt said to think of an incident that one or more people might see very differently from you. Tell the story beginning with the words, this is how I see what happened. Ah. So it wasn't necessarily that you had to include all of those perspectives. It was just a story that you had to tell knowing other people were there and that it's very clear that, you know, the story that you're telling is only going to be seen in your way. Oh, so I made a better version of it. You made a way better version. So if you're doing this exercise, you should do it my way because that actually does cause you to to, to really have to dig in and think about. It's a good mental trick to force yourself to suppose what other people are thinking given a certain set of circumstances. Yeah. You know what? If we were teaching a class, what I would do is I would scaffold it. I would have the students write the version that was written, which was, you know, you only put your perspective, but knowing that there are other perspectives. So you would have told this story without the perhaps thing. But then I would have them read that essay about perhapsing and give them some examples and then have them write, write the assignment again, but this time including what you did here, which is assuming what other people might have been thinking. Yeah, let's go with that. Ha, someday. We, you never know. We could, be, we could be teaching. You never know. So we wrapped up the, the exercise. We didn't have to write a, a sex scene. I think we'll call this. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So before we go, um, let's just remind people again that if you are interested in doing a writing session, like uh, similar to a shut up and write session, we are running that through our meetup group, Words to Write by Podcast, and we'd love to have you. Yep. Join us for the process group or the writing spree. Hope to see you there. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we would love it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have a friend that's writing a memoir, could you please recommend this podcast? I think it'd be really helpful for someone that's starting on a memoir. Yeah. Or fiction. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. Words to Write By is produced by Renee Nelson and Kim Smith-Adam. Our theme music is Roll Back the Carpet by Cool Cat Music. Have a great day.
wife, she'd be dead, and that would be literary gold. But you can't say it. <gasps> wow, that's insane. Thank you for sharing that. I, I feel like I'm pr privileged to to hear that. But yes, dear listener, you don't want to know what that 